810 in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 21. If you've been around a certain person for a long time, you've probably seen their angry face. You know, the, the, the face that many husbands uh, say, uh-oh, when they see it on their wives. Uh, as churchgoers, uh, most of us don't get to see that angry face on each other because maybe we spend two, perhaps three hours um, on a Sunday morning, partially afternoon with them. And we're, we're pretty good at covering it up what's really going on in our hearts. We're pretty good at concealing it. And what our mornings uh, and partially, uh, partial afternoons consist of is something like, hey, good morning, great to see you, how was your week? Have a good week. That's our conversation for the most part with one another. So, one another. so it's easy to cover up the anger um, that is going on in some of us, right? Um, and, and, and I'll take you back to my uh, personal, personal uh, testimony. Uh, and please don't judge me. I'm going back two decades, okay? So, 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 so uh, one Sunday morning, uh, Sharon and I were in a church we attended uh, 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 at that time. And um, after mingling for a little while, you know, I, I, I was ready to go. So I went outside, and I'm waiting for Sharon. And I'm waiting for Sharon and I'm waiting for Sharon. So what I do is I go up to the window and I make on, eye contact with her um, and, and my face is not a, a Sunday morning face. It's something like, come on. But what happened is slightly to my right, there was an older lady. And when I looked over there, she mouthed the words, Oh, he's angry. <laughs> and I was embarrassed. I was, I, was, I was embarrassed at her seeing my unrighteous anger. But here's the thing. I was not in the least bit phased at my display of unrighteous anger before a merciful God. That wasn't what I was concerned about at that moment. I was more concerned with my character being revealed before her than I was at my failure to heed the warning from our text this morning in chapter 5. And, and, and to be clear, in chapter 5, Jesus is not so much speaking of the, you know, thing that we do as sinners, get angry every so often. What he is speaking about is something that is rooted in someone, something that is the norm for their behavior. And he's giving a loving warning to repent, to turn from that way. Because anger seems to be one of those acceptable sins that we as Christians have become experts at justifying. As soon as we mouth the words, I was angry, we usually have a reason that immediately follows our confession. Something like, I was angry because he cut me off and then he had the nerve to slow down after he cut me off, right? It's, we, we, we'll make something uh, that is unjustified anger before a holy God and we'll justify it. We'll say things like, in, in our personal lives, I was angry because you promised to take me out tonight, but you're tired. Again, you're always tired. 
And that resonates, that stays with us. And then we take it to the workplace and say uh, something like, I get so angry with some of the people at my workplace because they're lazy, unqualified, yet they act like they know everything. Right? And, and we hold that. And then we come home and we have this attitude that we carry from the workplace to home. And even as I'm giving some of these examples, some of you right now are saying, that's me. I, 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 I'm dealing with that, but I, it's already in your heart. It was just brought out. And you, you've been doing a good job of concealing that anger. But Ecclesiastes, quick in your spirit to become angry, for angry lodges in the heart of fools. God's words, not mine. But hopefully, hopefully over the next 40 minutes or so, you will see the problem. I'm praying your perspective will change. And by the grace of God, maybe just maybe God will bring you to a point where there's a freeing transformation that brings Christ-likeness even when you're facing those very same situations that got you angry yesterday. And when you go to work tomorrow, because you've been convicted by this message and the word of God, you, I can't continue to stay in this status as this angry person. That cannot be my uh, uh, markup when somebody describes me. Oh, he's, or she is an angry person. We have two parts to this sermon. Part one, the angry way to hell. The angry way to hell. And part two, the mercy-filled way to heaven. The mercy-filled way to heaven. So I'm going to ask you to follow me as I read Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 21 to 26. This is the holy word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Please pray with me. Father, you have the right to be angry because you are perfect in wisdom and know all things. We are limited sinners. We call each other names yet don't have all the facts. You are perfect in judgment, knowing the thoughts and intent of the heart. We are fleshly, and we think we're better than we are, but you are righteous. So we ask you to grant us the level of humil humility we need in order to be delivered from the sin of unrighteous anger and haughtiness. Amen. Part one. The angry way to hell. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 21 and 22a, just the first part of 22, when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, he's proceeding to launch 
into this teaching, which, which he's giving us six, he begins to give us six specific examples of how our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, which is what he said in the previous verse, in verse 20. If we are to enter the kingdom of heaven, our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Keep in mind, as, as, as he covers these six examples from the law, he's not altering the terms of the law. He's just correcting any and all misinterpretations and misrepresentations of that law. Then he adds, continuing in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And some people like to take the word brother uh, right, and say this only applies to our Christian brothers, our spiritual uh, brothers and sisters. But it's the basic Greek word for brothers, adelphos, adelphos. And according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, it has the following meanings. Meaning number one, a physical brother born from the same parents. Meaning number two, having the same national ancestors. Meaning number three, any fellow or man. Meaning number four, a fellow believer united to another by the bond of affections, and meaning number five, an associate in employment or office. And then he, they also add um, the sixth meaning, brethren in Christ. Um, the context, the context always determines which definition is appropriate. The immediate physical context is that the people Jesus is speaking to are mostly Israelites with some proselytes or uh, Gentile converts mixed in. But the broader context, meaning if you started at verse 1 and ended with the last verse of chapter 5, uh, you would see that in this full context, the definition, the definition of the word um, adelphos or brother come through. So I want you to move down to verse 43 in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. As you go through the Sermon on the Mount, you see Jesus starts here and then he broadens his audience to come all the way down to you on this day. And when he, he speaks of having unrighteous anger against a brother, he's including Everyone from your spiritual uh, brother to your physical brother, from your best friend to your worst enemy. It's definition number three from Thayer's uh, Greek lexicon, any man or fellow man. As John Gill, the English uh, Baptist pastor from the 18th century, biblical scholar and theologian who learned Greek by the age of 11 stated when addressing this very text, he said, by brother, is meant not in a religious sense, one that is of the same faith or in the same church state, nor in a strict natural sense, one that is so in the bonds of consanguinity, meaning to descend from the same um, ancestor, but in a large sense, any man of whatsoever country or nation, for we are to be angry with no man. But before we go any further, I want to note how the Bible makes a distinction 
in this anger. And they make a distinction between wrath and anger. And, and, and because I think many of us can be fooled into thinking we're okay with anger when we're not, I, I want to take a brief look at the difference. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31, page 978 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, 978 in your pew Bible. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, the Apostle Paul wrote, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And I believe what he does is he separates these two uh, because some people who have a quiet resentment for certain people or certain people groups may think they have no issues at all. But the word for wrath is the word thymos. Thymos, right? It's the explosive zero to 100 rage that everybody recognizes right away, right away. And, and my old teacher taught us uh, uh, one way to remember it is to think of a, a, volcano, a volcano erupting. And he did something that caught everybody off guard. He said, it's like thymos. I'm like, what? And it was shocking, but it was memorable. And he said, that's, that, that's observable by everybody. But the word for anger is different. It's the word horge. And the way to remember that is in its pronunciation. Horge. That's that deep-seated anger. That's that one. There may not be any yelling, but it lasts a long time. And we may think we don't have an issue with anger, but whenever we come in a certain uh, vicinity with some certain people or a person, it rises up. Horge. And, 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 and we may fool ourselves that, that, that this uh, uh, slow, deep burning anger isn't affecting us or there's, it's not a sin, but it is. It is, because Jesus said at the center of either one is a murderous heart. And those with a murderous heart are liable to judgment. And it only makes sense. It only makes sense, right? How can someone who has been forgiven of all unrighteousness, sealed by the Spirit of God, adopted into the family of God, forgiven of all, still walk around with a murderous heart? How's, how, how's that possible? The conclusion that the Bible makes is that person must not really have been forgiven at all. They must not have been sealed by the Spirit of God or adopted into sonship because they would be so convicted by that same Spirit that lies within them that they would have to repent of that unforgiving, angry heart, knowing there's a judgment to come. And as I said in my opening, anger is one of those sins that we justify instinctively. I'm going to ask, ask you to turn with me again to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, page 1012, 1012 in the Pew Bibles. James chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. What we do, most of us use anger as a defense mechanism. If there's any threat to our rights, our space, our health, etc., etc., our anger and level of wrath elevates. 
If our desires and passions aren't satisfied, we're irritable and grouchy. Don't talk to me. I don't want to hear it. It's like, why? When we pray, we expect God to hear us filled with sin. We expect God to listen. We'll yell at 10 o'clock and we'll pray at 10.05. Something's wrong. Because we expect the Spirit of God not to have any effect on our lives. That's not why you've been sealed with the Spirit of God. There's a purpose to look like God. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What causes quarrels and what causes fight among, fights among us? Be clear, he's speaking about the church. People who come week after week and hear messages on holiness and righteousness and repentance and sin. How is it that's not penetrating your heart? How do we get to to, uh, this place? How do the people of God get to this place where they're acting anti-God? We desire and do not have, so we hate. Also known as murder by Jesus. And the original word that's used here for passions identifies with our word, relates to our word for hedonism. Relates to our word for, for hedonism, which is a passionate desire for worldly pleasures. God says we fight with our brothers and sisters because we want what we want. And God says the real reason that you're not getting what you want is because I'm not giving it to you. This person is just an obstacle, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? We we, we wrestle with these these, these, these spirits that are working in this other person, and then we're trying to wrestle against God who says no. No, you're selfish. You're self-centered. You cannot have what you desire. And we're fighting with people that we desire to spend, um, we don't desire to be with them, right? We're Christians, we really don't want to be with Christians sometimes. It's a shame, but that's the truth. We desire to be with God. But don't you know your brother and sister desires the same thing? And these are people you're going to spend eternity with. These are people who, who, who we should learn how to uh, live with them now so it won't be strange and awkward, right? It's like, man, I, I really was so bad to them uh, on earth. I was, I was terrible. I was rotten. I was, I was short patient with them, and I should not have been. God is the real reason we don't get what we want all the time. We have the wrong motives. We're selfish And God says, no, you can't have it. God knows how selfish we are. So what he does is throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, he sprinkles these messages about anger and how it hurts us and how it's ungodly. Matthew 5 just happens to be one of those places. And so as we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, this morning you're here, you just happen to need this message today. 
And he goes on to say at the end of Matthew 22, Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. When Jesus refers to the council, he's speaking, to, uh, the, he's speaking about the highest court in Israel, the Sanhedrin. But then he goes even further and refers to the highest court of all, where the Lord is judge. And at that judgment, one is liable to hellfire. And although we read here hellfire in the original is the word Gehenna, which is actually one word made out of two. And he's referring to the Valley of Hinnom, which they all knew about. Uh, and that's uh, they, a place they also called uh, Topheth. Topheth. And it was a place where some of the Israelites cruelly sacrificed their own children to false gods. This, this, this continual flame for the refuse, uh, a, a refuge of refuse of Israel, and they would take their children there and throw them in the fire because that's what they learned uh, from the neighboring uh, people. And, and in, in, in Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 30, he speaks about this. Uh, verse 30 and 31, in his righteous anger, God tells Judah, for the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command. Jesus is speaking of it as a place of uh, a torment for the reprobates. And in our text, he threatens all who carry unrighteous anger in their hearts that they will end up in a place that burns with a continual fire, just like the valley of Hinnom, hellfire. And someone here today may be thinking, man, that's, that's over the top. How am I going to be thrown in hell for calling somebody a fool? It, it, it doesn't seem um, equivalent. Like, I, I did this, and the, the, the punishment seems to be far outweighing. Sorry, the, the transgression seems to be far outweighing the punishment. To call someone a fool here is equivalent to calling them empty-headed. But that's not at the heart of what would send someone to the fires of hell. Merely insulting someone is not the total issue. It's the sinful, hateful anger that's behind the verbal abuse. It's having a heart that has the capability to commit murder. That's what's being Condemned, And those who have this heart are threatened with eternal hellfire, right? The e this, this evil internal indignation is what Jesus is really speaking against. Unrighteous anger, uncalled for wrath, carry the same moral guilt as an act of murder. The Apostle James once more addresses this. Uh, by, in, in James 1, 19 to 20, when he says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And that's what it comes down to. Whose righteousness are we more concerned with? God's righteousness or our self-righteousness? When we get angry with someone Mostly, it's because we believe 
we would never do or say what they did or said. We are better than that. So all compassion and empathy, empathy are thrown out the window. Our blood boils because we would never lie like that. We would never cheat like that. We would never sin like they sin. Yet we do sin. We are not perfect. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul rebukes those who are taking their brothers and sisters to court, going before unbelievers to decide a case between believers. And he, he tells them to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. That takes a heart of humility to say, I'm not always right, so they're wrong at this time, and I need to take it. I need to take it because God has saved my soul, and I have done wrong before man and before God. Who do I think I am? I want mercy when I do wrong, and I want grace, so I need to show mercy, and I need to show grace. Uh, uh, unrighteous anger can never produce the righteousness of God, but grace and mercy can. The Apostle James once more spoke on this in James chapter 2 and verse 14. And I need you to get this. I need you to get James chapter 2 and 14. If you want to go to sleep afterward, after I say this, I, I, I don't want you to, but if you want to, uh, you know what I mean? That's you and God. But James 2, 14, uh, just, just let this sink for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs judgment. For judgment is without, without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs judgment. That's tough, but that's real. If you are content to walk around being quick to anger and calling people names based on that anger, Jesus said, hell awaits. Hell awaits you. No mercy. No parole. You had no mercy. And you're thinking mercy and judgment are equal. 2.14 says no. You're, you're, you're thinking they're right here. Well, I'll show mercy, I'll show judgment to whom I want. No, God gets to do that. We don't get to do that. He's saying, he's saying mercy is way up here. Mercy is way up here. It triumphs judgment because we're sinners. God gets to hold them on equal plane because he does what he wants, according to Romans 9, right? We look through the scriptures and we'll see two people and we'll see God is much more heavy-handed on this one, even though he didn't uh, do as much as this one, and God gets to choose who lives and who dies. I'm so glad the threat of hellfire isn't the last thing Jesus said. He now tells them how to avoid this judgment and avoid this tragedy. This brings us to part two of our sermon. The mercy-filled way to heaven. The mercy-filled way to heaven, and I don't want that title to mislead you. The only way to heaven is by grace through faith alone. 
But that seed of faith that's planted alone doesn't stay alone. It comes with fruit. Fruit, fruit begins to sprout from that seed. And one of those things that come forward is this ability to have grace and mercy like you've never had before. See, the, the unsaved, hard-hearted person, they're like doing what they want and they judge, they judge unrighteously all the time. But the person who has had the seed of the Spirit planted in their heart has this fruit coming out. And they can look at themselves now and then look at themselves 10 years ago, a year ago, and say, man, I have changed. Because if that would have happened 10 years ago or a year ago, I would have let them have it. But God is doing something in me. God has, has been working on me, and I thank him for that. Going back to the, the current situation that the Israelites were going through, all right, they would bring a sacrifice or an offering uh, to the temple to present as a gift to God this act of worship, right, right? And it didn't matter the hate that they had in their heart. It didn't matter the arguments that they had with their wife and how they held this anger. As long as, you know, like the Pharisees said, we follow the law of Moses, I bring my offering. But Jesus says we're going to do it the right way, the right way, with the law intended. If you're bringing that offering, the best of the best from your flocks, and you just happen to remember that somebody has something against you, Leave it there. Leave it there. Why? Because it's unacceptable. Your heart is not right before me. So before you bring this sacrifice that you worked so hard, that, 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 that cost you so much in exchange rates, even before those wicked Pharisees, whatever, you know, um, and scribes, you have to leave it there because I am not receiving it because... I was there when you had that argument. I was there when those words came, and I'm there right now, and I know there's something unrighteous in you that you need to get right. You need to get it right. And if they had not set things, and if they do not attempt to set things right with those people or that person by issuing apologies, making restitution, or doing whatever they needed to do to make it right and undo the damage that they did, reject it. It, it means nothing. I'm tired of your sacrifices, God told Israel in the Old Testament. But as Jesus is directing us to reconciliation, there's a couple of things that I must say, two things that I must say. Number one, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There is, there is such a thing as righteous anger. It's called righteous moral indignation, technically. And Jesus exemplified this uh, when he threw the money changers out of the temple because, as I said, their ex excessive exchange rates made it almost impossible for the poor Jew and the proselyte to come before God and worship with an acceptable offering. They made God's house a den of thieves. And so the appropriate response to that is righteous moral indignation. It's anger and wrath justified. And then in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, it was the Sabbath day. And the Jewish leaders were watching Jesus. And they wanted to see whether he was going to heal on the Sabbath. They wanted to accuse him. 
So Jesus said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. They didn't say a word. And the scripture says, Jesus looked around at them with anger. And that's our word, horge, because they were evil and God is good. And the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around, but they were wicked. And Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. Jesus was angry and of course he did not sin. And this scripture is telling us that there are times when we should have righteous moral indignation stirring up within us. But it's reserved for those things that would get God angry. Religious hypocrisy. False teachers who mislead people on purpose. People who hurt children. Etc., etc. There are those things that you know God would be angry with. So we have a right to be angry at those things. Unfortunately, that and those are not the things that we get angry at for the most part. It's things that have to do with our personal pleasure, safety, uh, wealth, things that we deem important that are going to be burned up. They will be burned up. The second thing I must uh, uh, say is Jesus is now directing us towards reconciliation is that we can only reconcile with those who want to reconcile. Those who are willing to reconcile. Right? And that takes desiring to have a relationship by both parties. Luke 17, please turn with me there. Luke 17 verses 1 to 4. Luke 17, 1 to 4. I want to go there for just a minute, but it's so important. I need you to look at this. I need you to see it. Page 876 if you're using the Pew Bibles. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. We're going to come back to that. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Don't miss that. They must repent if we're going to go forward in a real relationship. A real relationship can only be reestablished by genuine repentance. Only genuine repentance can bring forth true forgiveness. How can we truly uh, forgive someone if they're not truly repentant? We can't. Not that we hold this unrighteous anger against them in our hearts because they never said, I'm sorry. We don't hold that anger. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. So we wish them no harm at all. But it's not possible to repair a relationship if someone isn't repentant at all, right? How, how, how do we do that? All we can do is just be kind, 
But if we were this close, and this closeness was breached by sin, something has to be done to get back to this level of trust, this level where, where I can confide in you, I can come to you like I used to. And if this person over here is saying, no, you're blowing it out of proportion, I didn't do anything wrong, it's not going to work. Luke is not saying that, that you hold it against them and you're angry with them. No, but what he's saying, they, they must have a change of mind concerning what happened and their sin, their sin, so that you can begin loving like you used to. You can begin doing life together like you used to. So many people who do not know God will tell you, you're a Christian, you're supposed to forgive, but they don't want to repent, they don't want to change. Luke is speaking against that. God speaks against that. What does Jesus say when he begins his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did, he, what, what, what did, what, what did John the Baptist say in his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We can't just go like everything is good. From Genesis to Revelation, once again, there has to be a change, this change that says, Lord God, I am a sinner. And we need to walk right before God. And if God demands it for us to have a relationship, you better be sure we have to have it to maintain this relationship. Besides that, everything is going to be shallow. We'll pretend we're all right, but we're not really all right. Now, when the text says, pay attention to yourselves, it's saying, if you are the reason for the contention between you and your brother or sister, fix it, and fix it quickly. Pay attention to your conduct, the part you played in the dissension and discord. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. So we think, is it something I should have or could have overlooked? In our text, Jesus put it this way, verse 25 of Matthew 5. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And what it appears that Jesus is doing is he is using the Roman law of the 12 tables as he's teaching them by the side of the, uh, of the mountain. He's using what they would be familiar with. The, the 12 tables of, of Roman law was created in Rome roughly 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. And it, it was the legislation that stood at the foundation of Roman law. And it, expressed, it, it expressly directed the plaintiff and the defendant, that if there's something between you guys, and even if you, to the last minute, if you have a, a, a court date, as you're on the way to the, to the courtroom before the praetor, or the counsel, or the judge, what you have to do, what you should do, is reconcile. Because once Rome makes a decision, there's no parole. And it's going to be hard, a hard sentence. So even as cruel as the Romans were, this thing right here was the foundation. Make up before you get here. Because if you're found guilty, you're going to be punished 
until the very last penny is paid. Doesn't matter your status. It, it doesn't matter how much money you uh, have or don't have. You're not getting out. So make up before we judge. The very last penny must be paid. The Roman copper coin. Our translation calls it uh, a penny, but it's cadantrous in Greek and quadrants in Latin, and it was 164th of a day's wage, which is a denarius, as most of you know, right? But it was the smallest coin in circulation. And the point Jesus is making is that those who insist on holding unforgiving, unwarranted, and unrighteous anger towards another will be judged on judgment day, found guilty, and remained locked away in a condemned state. And they won't get out. They won't get out. That's the point, that, that's the big picture that he's making. And he uses a societal picture of, uh, of those who are punished by human tribunals once they are found guilty to illustrate that in God's courtroom when it comes to anyone being found of this, 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 this uh, evil anger. That's what it is. It is evil anger. He's going to judge them as violators of the sixth commandment, murder. That's the, the fitting punishment in God's eyes. Why? Why, Why will be, they be judged so severely? Because never is a person more like Satan than when he or she has this hateful anger residing within. According to Luke chapter 6, verse 11, the Pharisees held this continuous evil horge, this hateful, sinful anger uh, towards Jesus. This is one of the reasons he would tell them in John chapter 8, and verse 44, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. So I can't stress it enough. Never is a person more like Satan when he refuses to forgive or she just will not let it go. Even though uh, repentance has been made. Even though somebody's trying to uh, restore through restitution what was once done. If they continue to hold on to that, they are looking just like Satan. He loves discord between brothers, Proverbs 6. He, 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 he applauds families that break up and people who no longer speak to one another. He loves Christians who no longer speak to one another. You are making his day because you have joined his team. But on the other side of the spectrum, never is a person more like Jesus when love, forgiveness, Grace and mercy are their greatest desires. When Jesus was arrested, mocked, whipped, and beaten, he was quiet as a lamb led to the slaughter. He did not rebuke those who tormented him or even try and defend himself. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. That's 1 Peter 2, 23. Right? And, and to entrust is to hand over to someone else to keep to hand over to someone else to keep. Christ was handed over to Pilate. Pilate handed him over to the Jews. Christ handed himself over to God. 
He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He suffered in silence because of his perfect confidence in the sovereignty, providence, and righteousness of his father, God. Here's the question. Can you do the same? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. According to 1 Peter 3.18, the, the, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The same spirit that hovered over the earth when it was without form and void and took part in creating a beautiful world resides in you. Genesis 1-2. You have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for a purpose. Not just to come to church on Sunday mornings for two hours and sing songs and go home and be the same person. But the Spirit is in you. It's, it's, it, it awakened you to the love of Christ. And, and, and it, it, it's to change your day to day. How is the fruit revealing itself? Galatians 5. This, the, the fruit of the flesh is anti-God. But the fruit of the Spirit reveals God. That should be coming forth. We can be imitators of God, right? Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And do what? Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself self up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or you can choose to remain in your sinful anger day after day after day and face the righteous judgment of God. The Apostle John, writing to the church in 1 John 3, 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. No sugarcoat. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I implore you this morning to repent I'm asking you strongly to repent from sinful anger, this unforgiveness that, will, that, that you just want to hold on to, right? You have this power when you're angry. You determine when you're going to speak to someone. You hold them in this cage. And God says, no, you don't belong to me. You don't belong to me. That, that is not me. That is not me. So far as it depends on you. What does Romans 12 say, 18? Live peaceably, peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But Pastor Mike, how do I overcome evil with good? Our character is to be good. Some people's character is to fight. When we're in the midst of that, I don't know about you, but it doesn't feel good to me. It's like I'm taking to this, taking to this place where even in the midst of it, I'm like, oh, this is not good. But they're having a ball. They want to take you down this ride of anger, and we follow them. We get on that ride, and God says, no, you overcome that evil. You overcome it because you have been supernaturally transformed by a God who was filled with goodness. Quickly, three ways on how to come over evil with good. Number one, 
Of course, prayer. Ask the Lord, specific prayer out of uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. Ask the Lord to direct your heart into the love of God and the patience of Christ. Ask the Lord to direct your heart into the love of God, awesome, and the patience of Christ, awesome. Number two, refuse to let the sun go down on your anger. So you give no opportunity to the devil. That's Ephesians 4, 26 to 27. Don't hold it. A day goes by, a second day goes by, and there's this silent treatment. There's this thick cloud every time that person enters the room or you enter the room. He says, no, refuse that. Do not give place to the devil. And number three, be encouraged. How can I be encouraged when I'm angry? Be encouraged because you are not alone. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Entrust yourself to him. Know that you have someone who is there to say that if you do not quench the spirit, I am able to take you from this place of anger to this place of peace in the midst of the fire. Not when the fire has stopped, but in the midst of the fire. I am there with you. So be encouraged by that. To end, one last place to turn. Because I want you to see how the devil gets up in there with this anger, how he's able to get his hand in your life. 2 Timothy 2, 24. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 24, page 996 in the Pew Bible. Page 996 in the, in the Pew Bible. Beginning at verse 24 of 2 Timothy 2. And the question I want you to leave here thinking about is, am I a servant of God? Am I a servant of God? And then get your answer from the text. Because here's what a servant of God does. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 24. And the Lord's servant must not. It's not left ambiguous. It's not left maybe. You're a servant of God. You must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting your opponents with gentleness. Now, there's a reason behind that. There's a reason that comes out of 25 right in the middle. Uh, but first, I want to ask you, you, whose servant are you? Because if you're a servant of the Lord, you must be these things. You can't be this fighter. Well, my, my, my daddy was a fighter, my granddaddy. We don't take no mess. Well, you've been born again, given a new father to honor him. Why? What is the promise? God may perhaps grant them repentance, a change of mind. Isn't that what you really want? Or do you want to win the battle and lose the war? What do you really want? If you want them to, 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 to believe, be delivered and saved, perhaps God will show them mercy. And he's saying, don't get in the way. Don't be fleshly like them. But you have to honor me, follow Christ, entrust yourself to me in the midst of the argument. Back up. Quench your flesh. Put aside your ego because I may perhaps grant them repentance. Right? 
I may, I may change them. But we argue, we argue, and sometimes we'll get this form of behavior modification, and they'll be good for a day or a week, but they go right back. God says, I'm able to do an eternal work in them. Don't get in the way of that. I may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You have an enemy that blinds your loved ones and your co-workers and your neighbors and your children and your parents. And you're arguing with someone who's blind. Who here would argue with a, a, a man crossing the street with dark glasses on and a cane and he's in the middle of the street? Who here would yell at him, you fool? Or would you have mercy and compassion on him and say, no, no, this way, this way. It's the same thing. People who are arguing with you over foolishness, don't argue back. God says, trust me. Don't be quarrelsome, but kind. Teach them Christ. Correct them with gentleness. And I may step in. Or would we rather win our little petty fights? What do you want to do? So answer the question, am I truly a servant of God? I pray you will cast aside unrighteous, unwarranted indignation. I pray you will be changed. Let us go before God, our, our, our Father. Lord, we praise you. You are so good, Lord God. Those who don't know you, they're already going to face the wrath of God and be tormented for all eternity. Why do we want to add to that? If they do not receive Christ as Savior, they're going to face your wrath. Who do we think we are to want to add to that, Lord? My God. There are so many in our lives that you have providentially placed that we may show them Christ. We have a chance to be an amazing part of their testimony. That if you should grant them repentance, they may spend the rest of their lives proclaiming how this Christian, who could have chosen to be angry with me because of my wickedness, showed me grace. And Lord God, if it's our family members, we pray you save them, Lord. If it's, if it's a coworker or a neighbor, we pray you would open their eyes. Lord God, there are so many people who do not receive you, who will not receive you, Lord God, but there are those who you will convert. And we do not want to be a stumbling block to them. Please save, Lord, all of our unsaved loved ones. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.